0: Over the last several weeks, we've been talking about some weighty topics. We've talked about sexual holiness, the sexual ethic that Jesus presents and that the Bible teaches us, Uh, and that is basically that sex is a good gift from God designed for procreation, pleasure, intimacy, but also by design, supposed to be restricted to just between a man and a woman. In a lifelong covenantal relationship, there is a topic that generates debate and conflict out in our society, right? We've talked about how God wants us to love each other more and more, so much that God is pleased and our neighbors are amazed, but sometimes that's kind of a difficult thing to do. We've talked about the timing and the circumstances of Jesus' second coming. Is there going to be a rapture? When is it going to happen? Who's it going to involve? What's it going to look like? Talk about a topic that generates debate and discussion, conflict inside the church. And so I can imagine that maybe at this point, you're just ready to say, hey, how about we step back and just you know, maybe not do something quite so controversial? Why do we have to keep talking about all these hard things? Why can't we do something that's less likely to get people stirred up and maybe upset or angry about them? Why can't we just spend some time talking about things, you know, that are a little bit more ordinary? You know, ordinary things like Um, How is leadership in a church supposed to work? How should we care for our people in the church? What should our worship look like? What's the role of the Holy Spirit in the life of the church? That one, yes, that one can be a little bit conflicted at times. But for the most part, these are pretty ordinary things that ordinary churches have to figure out and And uh, just are part of the ordinary church life. And so those are things that we're going to be talking about this morning. Today we're actually concluding our series from the New Testament book of 1 Thessalonians. And we've learned that this book, it's really a letter written by the uh, early church leader, church planter, apostle, you can keep adding titles, greatest missionary probably that's ever lived, uh, Paul. Um, who went to Thessalonica and started a church there. And this letter is written to the people who were there. This Greco-Roman city, it was big, it was prosperous, it was very religious and spiritual, but not at all Christian. And so Paul wrote this letter to them, to those Christians who were there, to help them know how to live well and faithfully as followers of Jesus in their city, while they were waiting for Jesus to come back again. This morning, we are going to see how Paul brings this letter to a conclusion. And as we do that, we're going to learn some important lessons that are quite applicable for ordinary churches, very much like ours. So if you have a Bible, I would invite you to open up to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. If you're using one of our Red Bibles, um, it's page 1838, First 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Paul here, as he concludes this letter, he does so with some final instructions for the church there in Thessalonica. Certainly in the course of this letter, he has talked about some big and important things. But now he's getting ready to wrap it up. But there's still a few more things he wants to make sure he communicates to them and even revisits some of the themes that have come up in the letter previously. Now, as I look at this list that Paul gives us here, uh, what Paul has for us is tremendously practical. And I'm sure that it's based specifically on things that he knew were needed or were particular to the situation there in Thessalonica. But at the same time, what we see here is also very practical for very ordinary churches, kind of like this one. Paul here is going to speak to four different things. We're going to take a look at each of them in turn. The first thing that Paul talks about here, Paul reminds the people to honor those who lead the church. Uh, Look at verse 12. That's where we're going to start this morning. Paul writes to them, Now we ask you, brothers and sisters, to acknowledge those who work hard among you, who care for you in the Lord and who admonish you. Hold them in the highest regard and love because of their work. Live in peace with each other. You might remember that one of the things we learned early on in this series is that Paul's time in Thessalonica had been cut unexpectedly short. Paul and his team were were driven out of the city perhaps as soon as just a few weeks after they had gotten this church started. And so to say that this would have created some challenges for this church would be quite the understatement. I mean, those who were suddenly thrust into leadership due to Paul's sudden but necessary departure may may well have really struggled to know how it is that they were supposed to provide leadership in their church. And then all the people in the church may well have struggled how, how to know how they were supposed to relate to these newly elevated leaders within their church community. And so Paul's instructions here may well have been particularly important for this particular church in their particular situation. Yet at the same time, this is also what every ordinary church should also be doing all the time, and that is honoring those who lead their church. Because see, part of following Jesus well and faithfully includes honoring and submitting to the spiritual leaders of your local church. This is part of God's design for the church. Now, Paul here, he doesn't name these leaders as elders, and we actually don't have any information about how these particular leaders were chosen in this particular instance because Paul had to make a quick escape, and he doesn't say anything more about it here in the letter. Um, So even though we don't know the exact specifics of exactly what it looked like there in Thessalonica, what we do have across the Across the New Testament is a pretty consistent model of church leadership. And so what we see in the New Testament um, is that the top-level leaders of a church are called elders. Uh, and the elders' primarily respons- primary responsibility is to provide both guidance and guarding, or gu- they're, they're to guide and to guard the church. Now, There are ways that they are not and are supposed to do this. They are not supposed to do it through heavy-handed demands and decrees, uh, but instead through responsive, compassionate, servant-shaped leadership. Leadership that both honors God first and foremost, but also very much prioritizes the well-being of the people that they are supposed to be leading and serving and not their own preferences and opinions on things. In the New Testament, these elders, they're well-qualified men who are affirmed by the church body to guide and to guard their local church. And they are then assisted in this work by well-qualified men and well-qualified women whom the Bible calls deacons. Now, it actually isn't clear to us from the text exactly how developed the leadership structure actually was there in Thessalonica at this time. But what we do know is that Paul describes these leaders as people who work hard, who provide care, who admonish when is necessary. And so the congregation's responsibility to these leaders was to acknowledge and honor their leadership. And this meant submitting to their leadership in the sphere of the church, as well as taking seriously the instruction that they would have been receiving from these elders, as well as the spiritual counsel and correction they also would have had from them. Here at DFBC, our leadership model is structured, or is um, yeah, is structured after the one that we find in the New Testament. Um, Here at DFBC, we have both elders and deacons. Our elders are well-qualified men, as described in Scripture. Our deacons are well-qualified women and well-qualified men. Um, The candidates for elder as well as for deacon uh, are considered and nominated by the elders, but with the deacon's input. But then they also get affirmed by the church membership before they ever assume these leadership roles. But that means that all of us, uh, including me as the pastor and even as one of the elders, it means that we all, I, have a God-given responsibility to submit to and to honor the spiritual oversight and leadership of the elders of this church. Now, if we ever find ourselves in a church, in a situation where We just decide this is something we can't or won't do. That means that something needs to change. If the issue that we're having is that the leaders of the church are acting outside of the parameters of their scriptural authority, then what needs to happen is we need to go to a different church in all likelihood. But, on the other hand, if the leaders are, in fact, being faithful to their God-given responsibility, and we just don't like the idea of having to submit to somebody else, then the thing that needs to change is us. See, to follow Christ is to live a life of submission, first and always to Christ, but then also to all those whom he's designated certain spheres of authority in the family, in the church, in the government, even to your superiors or your supervisors, your bosses, your teachers. Again, the focus here is on the church. And Paul is reminding them, just as this text is intended to remind us, We are to honor those who lead our local church. Well, Paul, he's begun by focusing on the congregation and how they're supposed to look at leaders. And I think that what he does next is actually now look at the leaders and tell them how they're supposed to lead the congregation. So here's the second thing that Paul does here. He, He instructs the leaders of the local church to care for their people properly. And the way that he highlights here is doing this uh, in a way that recognizes that different people in different circumstances require different kinds of care. Now, I will say we don't know for sure that Paul is specifically talking to just the leaders here because he doesn't actually say that, um, although I think that he is. But regardless, what he says here is actually applicable for everybody in a church. But let's look at it. Verse 14. 14. Paul continues here, he says, And we urge you, brothers and sisters, warn those who are idle and disruptive. Encourage the disheartened, help the weak, be patient with everyone. Make sure that nobody pays back wrong for wrong, but always strive to do what is good for each other and for everyone else. Always strive to do what is good for each other, And for everyone else. I mean, that's basically the golden rule, right? That Jesus gives us. Um, And and so, any leader, certainly, but, but really any person who makes that their goal, doing what is good for everyone else, you can be pretty sure you're on the right track at this point. And notice that Paul emphasizes that what is good or needed by one person is not necessarily what is good or needed by another. You know, what some people in some circumstance need is warning. Um, there in Thessalonica, there apparently were people in the church who were idle and disruptive. That's what Paul says there. Whatever exactly that looked like, these people needed warning. That what they were doing wasn't right, that it needed to change. They needed to be warned. But see, not every, uh, not everything is fixed with warning and correction. Some people, some circumstances are better addressed with encouragement. Others who are weak need leaders to provide help, provide actual assistance for whatever their need is. And whatever is needed by the particular person in their particular circumstance, whether it's warning, whether it's encouragement, whether it's help, it's to be delivered with patience. Not roughly, not angrily, not impatiently, not in a way that would in any way demean or embarrass the person, but in a way that genuinely works for the good of the person who is receiving it, whether it's encouragement, whether it's help, or even whether it's a warning or something else entirely. So, fellow elders, deacons, are we up for this? Are we prepared, are we courageous enough to warn those who are in need of warning? Are we able to encourage those who are disheartened? Are we willing to help, really help those who are weak? And to do all of these things and more with patience and with grace. And to approach it that way because what we want more than anything is good for these people that God has entrusted us to lead. Because see, this is non-negotiable. To lead God's church well and faithfully, we have to be courageous but also generous and humble. And in touch with what our people and with what each of our people Really needs in the different seasons and circumstances of their lives. See, this is what every ordinary church needs, needs leaders like this. Third, Paul reminds the church of the important rhythms of worship. Look at verse 16. He writes to them Rejoice always, pray continually. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Rejoice always, pray continuously, give thanks in all circumstances. So Paul wants the Thessalonians, this text wants us, is telling us that joyfulness, prayer, and thanksgiving needs to be part of the regular rhythm of our lives both individually as we live our lives outside the church as well as collectively as we do church together like we are right now this morning. Paul says, rejoice always. Here's the good news. Every follower of Jesus always has reason to rejoice. As we've talked in recent weeks, we who were all children of darkness we are now children of light. Rejoice. We who were children of the night are now children of the day. Rejoice. We who are destined for wrath, God has now destined for salvation. Rejoice. Rejoice. And even if the world starts burning down around us, We have the certain assurance that Jesus is coming back to finally and forever fix all of it. Rejoice. Rejoice always. But also pray continuously. We can and we should pray throughout our day. We should do that alone and we should do it together. Because, see, we can and we should be talking to God about our deepest thoughts and feelings and desires. Whether we are feeling happy or really sad. Whether we are feeling confident or or just completely confused about what was going on around us. Whether we are excited about the things that are happening or, quite frankly, just angry about it. Maybe even angry at God about it. Pray continuously. Talk to him about these things. Pray with and for each other in these things. I mean, when you hear about a need, don't wait for the next prayer meeting to bring it up and pray for it. Pray for it right then. Pray for it right there. And then also in the prayer meeting or whatever. Pray with your spouse. Pray with your kids. Pray with your friends. Pray with your neighbors. Pray continuously. And then, of course, give thanks in all circumstances. Maybe that's the one that seems the most challenging. Because lots of circumstances don't seem like they're very good. But when Paul here says, give thanks in all circumstances, he's not claiming, certainly not assuming, or thinking that all circumstances are good, will be good. He knows many of them won't be. Many times his circumstances weren't very good. But what is good is our God. As well as his ability to bring about good even out of the most difficult and tragic circumstances that we experience in this life. That is something which is true for those who love and trust him. And so between his unfailing faithfulness to us as well as his power, his power to bring good out of even the worst of things. It means that we always have reason to give thanks to God in all circumstances, not necessarily for the circumstance, but for the good that we know God can and will bring out of them or through them. And so rejoice always, pray continuously, give thanks in all circumstances. When we make these practices part of the regular rhythms of our lives, both individually as well as collectively as a church, our lives and our churches are going to be characterized by worship, the kind of worship that should be ordinary for ordinary churches. Fourth Paul tells the church to remain open to the Spirit's work among them. Look at verse 19. He says to them, "Do not quench the spirit. Do not treat prophecies with contempt, but test them all. Hold on to what is good, reject every kind of evil." A little background so you understand. When we first make that decision to follow Jesus, when we first pledge our love and loyalty to him as our true rescuer king, one of the things that happens is that the Spirit of God begins living inside of us, in, begins indwelling us, is, is oftentimes the way that, that that is described. This Spirit, the Holy Spirit, is the presence and the power of God now inside of us. And that means that anywhere and everywhere that you go, you take with you, you bring with you the power and the presence of God to that circumstance and situation. There's something to, to, to just kind of meditate on and think about the implications of that. It's amazing. It also means that when we are gathered here as a church, as we are right now, the Spirit is powerfully present here among us. But to quench the Spirit is to suppress or to minimize or to downplay the ways that the Holy Spirit can manifest Himself in us or among us. One of the ways that the Spirit manifests itself Uh, is through the expression or the practice of spiritual gifts, uh, which are often to be practiced in the context of the church. Um, Since the Bible actually tells us that the purpose of these gifts is for the building up of the church. Well, here, at the conclusion of this letter, um, for reasons that he doesn't completely explain, Paul identifies one particular manifestation of the Spirit. He talks about prophecy. Now, people hear prophecy and they think all sorts of different things. Um, In the Bible, however, uh, prophecy has a very distinct meaning. Prophecy is a message from God for people through a person who receives that message from God. So, if I were the prophet, which I'm not claiming to be, but if I were, it's the message from God given to me, but it's one that's... For you, it's for the people. Okay, occasionally uh, it'll be something that uh, is about the future, you know, that it's predictive. But but far more often in the Bible, um, it, it actually is focused on the present, uh, present time, not the future. Um, Focus on the present. So it could be a word of warning from God for you, mediated through me, or it could be a word of encouragement, again from God. He gave it to me so that I could give it to you. Or maybe instruction or maybe even revelation. But again, the point is that it's from God, it's for others, and it's brought through a person. Now, I got to imagine that all this talk of prophecy is probably making some of you a little bit nervous. Because we're Baptists, right? That's a joke. (laughs) Because um, sometimes Baptists get nervous when we start talking about some of these more charismatic gifts, right? We aren't exactly known for them, typically. And it probably doesn't take—I mean, depending on your experience with this, uh, you may some examples of this may come immediately to mind. But even if you don't have any personal experience with this, it probably isn't. Too hard for you to imagine how something like prophecy could be used and abused. Um, whether as a way for a person to try to attract attention to themselves, um, or even it can be used to try to manipulate other people. You know, hey, I heard from God, I got a message for you, here's what you should do. Right? God told me. To tell you that you're supposed to do such and such. Oh, God told me that you're supposed to go to this particular school. Or God told me that you're supposed to get married to me. I, it's happened. I, yeah, not to me, but I, yeah. I mean, you la- I did not use that as Suzanne. <laughs> I mean, I was hoping, but uh, yeah. <laughs> That's humorous. Um, but there have also been some pretty egregious examples of this uh, in recent years in parts of the church. Uh, certain self-proclaimed prophets have made uh, definitive assertions about how people are supposed to vote. Um, and also have made predictive claims about the outcome of how certain elections were going to play out that didn't end up coming true, which would then be clear evidence either that this person was knowingly lying and misrepresenting God or that they were listening to somebody who wasn't God. This can certainly be used... And abused. And so we might just then conclude that our best course of action then must simply be to reject any and every prophetic word that somebody might try to offer to us or to the church. But see, Paul, this text tells us that we're not supposed to do that either. Do not quench the spirit, do not treat prophecies with contempt. do not automatically treat prophecies with contempt. Instead, Paul tells them, just as this text tells us, that when someone claims to have a prophetic word from God for us, we are to trust but verify. Trust that God can and does speak to his people in this way. But verify, at least to the extent that we can, both the message and the messenger. So you might be wondering, what does that look like? How do we actually do that? Um, Let me give you three things, kind of three filters to think through it. So somebody comes to us and says, I've got a message from God for you. Here's what it is. The first thing that we should ask is if what this person is claiming to be a message from God is in agreement with the rest of Scripture. If it is, then remain open to it. But if not... Reject it. Because God will not contradict well interpreted scripture. Second, after you've done that, and if they've passed that first filter, consider this person's track record as a prophet. Um, Have previous prophecies that they've given proved to be true? Proved to have had merit? If yes, then continue to remain open to this new message that they're giving to us. If not, reject it. And then third, the other thing that we can and should do is we need to evaluate this particular person's character and conduct. Do they, does their life, does their attitude reflect a love for Jesus and the fruit of the Spirit? If yes then remain open to that message, that remain open to the possibility that this message really is from God for us. But if not, then we should reject it. I mean, even Jesus tells us, he says, watch out for false prophets. He not say watch out for all prophets. He says, watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. So liars, manipulators, all these things. And he says, by their fruits, or by their fruit, you will recognize them. So, evaluate their conduct and their character. Bottom line is that when someone comes to us claiming to have a message from God for us, we are to trust but verify. And having done that, Paul then tells us to hold on to what is good, but reject What is evil? Many of our churches, um, especially of the more Baptistic variety like ours, um, were not known for charismatic expressions of the presence of the Holy Spirit in our worship and church life. But that's actually part of the reason why we need to take Paul's words seriously here when it comes to manifestations of the Spirit, especially the kinds of manifestations of the Spirit that are described to us in the Scriptures, including prophecy, we should neither treat it with contempt nor with uncritical acceptance. Because one approach risks quenching the Spirit, which Paul says is a real thing, and we need to not do that. The other approach meaning being uncritical, risks that we be led astray then by false teachers. Both of these approaches are mistakes, mistakes that the ordinary church cannot afford to make. Trust and verify. Trust but verify. Now, if you were reading through 1 Thessalonians 5 on your own and you got to this last part of the text this text probably does feel like just kind of a collection of of somewhat loosely related topics. But all of them really are important for the ordinary church. In ordinary churches, we need to honor our leaders. In ordinary churches, we need to care for people in ways that are responsive to their particular situations and circumstances. In ordinary churches, we need to pursue lives of worship that are characterized by rejoicing and prayer and thankfulness. And in ordinary churches, we need to be open and wise to the Spirit's presence and power in our midst. And in the closing words of this letter Paul reminds the Thessalonians just as this text reminds us that even the most ordinary of churches can do these things well and faithfully. And the reason that we can do these things well and faithfully because it is God's power that is at work in and amongst us. You can hear this in Paul's words of blessing and prayer that he uses to conclude this letter. May God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ because the one who calls you is faithful and he will do it. Brothers and sisters, pray for us. Greet all God's people with a holy kiss. I charge you before the Lord to have this letter read to all your brothers and sisters. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. So concludes Paul's letter, first letter to the Thessalonians. Let me pray. Father, we rejoice that you are the one true God who has made the universe and all that is in it. You designed and created us to be your representatives, to rule this world with you, and yet we did not remain loyal to you. But we thank you for your great unstoppable plan to rescue and to redeem a people for yourself through Jesus Christ, our true rescuer King. And so Jesus, we rejoice that in you we have all that we need in order to live well and faithfully and thankfully in our beautiful but broken world. We thank you for a love so great that you willingly left the glory of heaven so that you could become one of us, showing us how to truly live and then dying for all the times and ways in which we don't. Holy Spirit, we rejoice that it is your presence and power in us that is the guarantee of our future salvation. Thank you for all the ways that you continue to work in us and in your church to keep us faithful until the coming of our Lord Jesus. Form us into a church that honors her leaders, that cares for all of her people, who faithfully worship and is always open and sensitive to your leading in our lives, in our church body. Continue to make us more like Jesus so that we become more and more your agents of faith and love and hope in this beautiful but broken world a world that one day we know Jesus is going to come back to finally and forever fix and make new again. We pray this in his name. Amen.